New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community, proudly supported by Umbrella Connect. Today we're talking with Stefan Powell, who is the Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder at Dawn Aerospace. Welcome along, Stefan. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, great to, great to have you here. I know we've sort of bounced the idea of having you on the show uh, around sort of six, 12 months ago, and uh, things seem to be going from strength to strength with, with Dawn Aerospace. You've yeah. just, just had a big announcement in the last uh, 24 hours. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had Movac come on board, um, put some money in behind us. Um, really great. I mean, like the, the New Zealand's biggest VC. It's so it's epic to have have them um, having them support us. Um, they just bring so much uh, experience to the team. You know, they've been involved in some some of New Zealand's most successful tech stories. Um, but as well, GD One um, has actually come in as well, and then a bunch of the insiders as well, like um, Ice House Ventures that backed us in our seed round um, a couple of years ago. I've put in a good chunk uh, with it as well. So, yeah, stoked. That, that's excellent. Are you able to reveal sort of how much you've raised or what sort of direction or anything like that? No, we're keeping that pretty close for now, but it's um, it's substantially more than we've ever raised before, um, and it's enough to um, really grow the company from here. You know, we had we had pretty strong revenue anyway, um, which is a little bit weird almost um, as, a, as such an early space startup. You know, we were getting pretty close to almost um, breaking even, but um, you know that's we're only working on a small part of our very big dream at the moment, and so we really want to grow from here. You know, so this this money is really about supporting growth through the next twelve months, and probably roughly doubling in that time. Fantastic. So before we sort of delve in a little bit to your story and the Dawn Aerospace story, can you give a very sort of short summary of what Dawn Aerospace is, is working on or at least what you're happy to reveal at, at this stage of your master plan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll start from the very top. I mean, Dawn is a space transportation company. We take a very holistic look at that. It's about getting things to space. That's delivering things to space. It's about positioning them once they're in space. That's like, you know, like satellite thrusters allowing satellites to move around. And in the very distant future, we think that that's going to be about getting huge amounts, amounts of stuff back down to space. So you really have to address all of these three things in a way that kind of makes sense. You know, right now they're, they're, they're somewhat separate. So, you know, like we're working on a space plane to um, have dramatically more scalable access to space, you know, not two or three or five or even ten times as much access. It's more like a hundred or a thousand times more um, access to space and at a dramatically lower cost. Um, and in terms of moving things around in space, it's it's getting away from these um, these legacy propellants that people have used, like hydrazine, that were really great if you had big military budgets. Not so great if you're trying to do really small satellites, where you know the the cost of dealing with the, the horrendous toxicity of of hydrazine is just it's, it's prohibitive. You know, like these people are trying to build satellites for 250 grand, and the 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 cost of just dealing with hydrazine is like half a million bucks. So it's, you know, it's twice as much as the whole value of the satellite. So it just doesn't work. Um, so that that was a problem that we really needed to solve now. Um, and we're also kind of in the, in the back of our minds um, figuring out ways to build in the return um, capability as well. So we don't talk about that, that too much at the moment, but everything that we're working on has to... Um, work harmoniously with the idea that we're going to have to be able to get a huge amount of stuff back down to earth as well pretty soon. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Well, definitely we'll want to delve in a little, a little bit to that and the importance of that yeah, a little bit further in. But first up, what's what's your background? Where were you born? Where did where did you grow up? What's that, that uh, backstory? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm a Kiwi. I was born in Wellington, raised in Hamilton. Um, 
yeah, did all my schooling in high school and stuff here. But um, I'm, I'm a dual citizen, um, Dutch as well. And the, the Netherlands is a pretty fantastic place to study. So um, I actually went over there and actually lived in Germany for a couple of years and um, taught English um, in kindergartens of, of all places. Um, and, yeah, then I kind of decided I wasn't going to be an English teacher. <laughs> so um, I wanted to go do engineering. And um, the TU Delft was an excellent engineering university uh, in, in the Netherlands. Um, I didn't really know it at the time that they had these fantastic rocket programs, but um, I, I really wanted to get into sustainable engineering. Um, so you might think, well, you know, like I ended up building rockets. It was kind of a little bit polar opposites. But I'd like to think that these two things are kind of coming back together now. I'm really trying to pull sustainability and long-term thinking into what is probably the most unsustainable industry um, that currently operates. You know, it's just horrendous waste in, in the aerospace industry in general. So we really need to change our thinking on that. Um, yeah, so that that's where I met um, the majority of the founders, um, with the exception of my brother, who I obviously met a little bit earlier. <laughs> um, Glad to hear it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, that that was where a lot of the, the really, like, core rocket science expertise came out of. That, that was out of Delft, um, out of these really cool student uh, rocket programs. Um, you know, that was 50-odd. People, we got together. We figured we wanted to do something cool as part of our, um, you know, actually extracurricular. It was um, on top of our studies, um, but yeah, just I mean, so many awesome minds together. You could do really cool stuff, and it, um, we we ended up working on these um, big hybrid rocket motors at at the time, which are slightly different type of rocket motor again. But we we could run this project entirely ourselves it was kind of this almost like business boot camp where the outcome didn't really matter because you were your students mm, but we mm. had to go raise our own money we had to go convince um these other companies to you know like give us machining time or um fancy materials or like let us use their 3d printers or like you know all, all this weird stuff because we we're always out for weird gear you know like you always just need weird materials with um when you're building rockets um, so it let us form this team and, and really form almost like a pseudo business. You know, we weren't trying to make money, but we were we were trying to break a European record at the time. You know, was, we were trying to do some some world firsts. Um, so we ended up building this pretty pretty huge hybrid rocket motor. Actually, is about one and a half ton of thrust, and we put that on a um, a rocket that was about two hundred odd kilograms, and we flew that from um, a military base um, in the south of Spain. You know, we, we convinced the space that we could we could launch this huge student built rocket there, which um, looking back amazes me that we, that we actually got that through. Um, and it took us a couple of years to get it right. You know, we went down there, tried to launch it, just had so many issues with it. We ended up having to go back to the Netherlands and completely rebuild the rocket and come back the next year and, and launch it again. So we had, you know, that that was an example of one sort of failure that we had that really. Um, you know, let us develop our skills, let us learn a lot about engineering, about what works and what doesn't, um, and how to build an epic team was probably the main thing, actually. Um, so, you know, the, the last bit of that project was actually launching the rocket, and it flew to, um, you know, about 22 kilometers altitude and Mach two and a half, and it was really cool, but it was kind of all over in like ninety seconds. <laughs> you know, and it was like, wow, it was like this five-year program with fifty people to build this rocket, and then it was all over. And we thought, well, that was cool, but there's got to be a better way. And that was really um, when I, I started talking more to my my brother about this stuff, and he had had a, a long history in um, in 
helicopter modifications back in New Zealand who've been working locally here, um, really successful local companies developing really cool technology and then exporting that to the world, you know, hugely lucrative. And we kind of put our heads together and we thought, well, you know, there's no reason that we can't take these high-performance rockets and build it into an aircraft, you know, get that operative like that operational um, flexibility and usability of, of an aircraft, you know, why, why can't we build a rocket that you can fly twice in a day? And so that was when we really formed Dawn as, as we know it today, us uh, um, five founders, including my brother. When was that? What year was that? That was sort of uh, late 2017. Yeah, okay. So then through... And through how, how long was that on from when you finished, uh, finished studying? Yeah, that was about a year and a bit after I finished studying. It, yeah. It's, it, you know, when I say it now, it seems it sounds so clear cut, but it was a it was a transition. You know, things kind of yeah. started moving. We all had other jobs at the time. You start chipping away at it, thinking about it, kicking ideas around. Yeah, you know, we yeah. ended up buying a um, a small model air, uh, aircraft airframe and designing the rocket to go on the back of it and and show that hey, we can fly. You know, a small rocket plane. Many times in a day, there's nothing fundamentally silly about rockets that mean you can't use them multiple times a day if you just design it right from the ground up. So we did that. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so in between studying and, and what is now Dawn Aerospace, you did a little bit of work out in in aerospace sector. What um, Tell us a little bit about um Yes. So I worked for a company called Hyperion Technologies. Um, They were a satellite component manufacturer, so they kind of make um, what they'd call um, attitude determination and control systems, which um, for anyone else out there um, is basically the, the, if you like, the the eyes of the satellite. It tells the satellite where it is and what direction it's pointing in, It's, its attitude. And then the control part of that is, you know, once you can, the satellite knows what orientation it's in, it might want to change its orientation. So there's these things called reaction wheels on them, which are basically just flywheels that are spinning. And, you know, you sp- spin the flywheel faster clockwise and your satellite will spin counterclockwise, you know. So it's just three of those to control the three axes. Um, so they built these systems, which are great for controlling these small satellites as the small satellite revolution was happening. Mm-hmm. But they quickly realized, hey, you know, um, we can tell these satellites, you know, or build the systems that tell the satellite which way it's looking, and then we can control that direction. The next thing is uh, they, they might want to move in that direction. So, hey, let's let's go into building um, rocket motor systems for these satellites as well. And so uh, my master thesis was actually on miniaturizing these um, otherwise huge rocket engines I'd been working on um, to bring them down to these small satellites, which was... Um, actually a real challenge that was um it was a real hole in the market because nobody had figured out how to bring high performance rocket engines down to you know like a shoebox size thing rather the whole satellite's a shoebox you know the, yeah. the the rocket motor itself ended up being about as big as my thumb so um it was a real challenge um but that that was kind of where some of that technology started um and now that's kind of been spun out into dawn as well We've we've taken on that challenge, and we still work with Hyperion Technologies on some of these systems. Fantastic! Now it seems to me, as I'm starting to learn more and more about the the aerospace and the new space sector, that there's a there's a lot of little firms doing these really really niche jobs. Um, and I I heard um, you know figure the other day that there's there's probably 150 companies 
in New Zealand working working in the the aerospace sector, which I don't think most people would be um, would be aware of. Most of those are definitely at the sort of smaller end, and then you've got some that are you know multinationals that are that have you know obviously you know have have some form of operations here as well. So there's there's really a lot a lot to do and a lot going on, isn't there? Yeah, and I think that just speaks to the opportunity and and the diversity of space as well. There's just you know, like space is this amazing vantage point, right? If you're if you're in one of these orbits, you know, a polar orbit, you can at some point see your service or hear or something about every position on Earth. You know, you'll fly over everybody at some point. So the real question is, okay, well, what can you do with that? And the answer is so many things, <laughs> so many things you never thought that would be useful. And that's what these companies are working for, uh, working on. There's, it's just like almost an infinite number of niches that you could you could carve out of that um, epic capability. And we're really only just at the start of realizing what that is. In in, in that way, it's so similar to the you know like the the internet in the 90s it was like oh man there's this epic capability what are we going to do with it and and that's what people are figuring out right now when you look at it what are the things that come to mind for you that maybe we haven't haven't yet touched but uh but are maybe coming up in the in the years ahead oh, i certainly don't have any amazing insight I'm, I'm i i feel like all of these things are in some crazy deep dark niche that you never thought was actually that interesting or you'd like how would it apply to space but it ends up being like biology stuff of some particular um, biological things that grow completely differently in microgravity and you know like uh, and, and the end result of that is uh, you're able to um, produce ibuprofen that's like a thousand times as strong as regular ibuprofen but it's still just ibuprofen it's not addictive like um, like opiates or something so you know that that's that's mega for the um, for the drugs industry similar thing slightly different vibe in, in, was that a in real it. world example or just yeah a, yeah that, oh, yeah, yeah there's, there's okay. people working on this is, okay, I, didn't, okay. I didn't dream that up wow, wow. Um, I couldn't dream this stuff up I wish I could <laughs> I'd be a millionaire if I, if, if I could um, I mean the same is true for super materials being able to grow single crystal huge um, metals um, it, they have crazy different properties um, and you're able to do that in space. Space is an absolutely amazing place to manufacture stuff because it's so clean and there's no gravity and there's almost infinite uh, power available to you because the sun's shining the whole time and much brighter and there's, uh, there's just so many good things about space and that's just in manufacturing. <laughs> right. Now I'm starting to join up the, the dots on the, the importance of bringing things back and not just exactly. sending, send, sending satellites up. Yep. Gotcha. Exactly. I mean, like, the, the things that we're doing now are the ones that are just so blatantly obvious, like low-hanging fruit, like communications and, and Earth observation. It's like, yeah, duh. <laughs> like, that's amazing. And, and we're barely even scratching the potential of those industries. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, a lot of interesting, uh, interesting times ahead. So uh, tell us a little bit about what it's like to actually start your own business. In your, in your case, what did that – what did that look like? Because it's not just, you know, when I started my business, one person, it's a very easy process, um, you know, business starts, there's there's enough, uh, you know, work coming in, you know, that I, I don't need to look outside for funding and so on. But, you know, you've got multiple partners, you're entering into you know something with a, with a, with a lot of unknown around it and it's not a particularly you know cheap area to be uh, to be working in right no no unfortunately not it's pretty capital intensive um, 
I, th- I think the first thing is to really have a dream. It's to it's to really understand what you're talking about um, as best as you can, and and understand what the end goal is, and um, make that end goal as, as really as ambitious as you can reasonably make it. Now that that's good because that's that's the end point. You want that to be epic and inspiring. But then, yeah, the tricky bit is planning out the roadmap to actually get there. Because un- unless you're Elon Musk and you have, at, you know, at the time for him, 100 million bucks sitting in his back pocket, it's pretty hard to just go start a big space company. Um, you, you have to be able to start somewhere, and that'll be at, you know, whoever you can convince to work with you. You know, so for me, that was about five of us at the time. That was the start. You could do that with nothing or you know whatever resources we had. And then you've got to figure out what, what can you do at that point to convince the next person that, hey, you guys are not you're, you're not fools. You can build something that's really amazing, that creates value, and that demonstrates that you're on the path to this amazing vision. Yeah. And you need to figure out how you're going to do that at each inflection point of the company. You know, at, um, at, at one person when it's just yourself, at 10 people, at 100, at 1,000, and, and so on. You need to demonstrate value um, all the way along that. And that's what I think we've done reasonably well so far at Dawn. We've found a way in. We've found a way to get real revenue into the company, to be doing real things. You know, we have hardware in space. We're not, um, we're not just infinitely tinkering in the back of a shed um, hoping to have something amazing in 10 years' time. You know, we're doing real things now. Okay, they're, not, they're certainly not as amazing as many other companies that have billions of dollars to throw at the problem, but it's real. Uh, and and that's that's the key for now. And so this is where you've got d- different you know areas to your business, the th- three areas that you um, that you that you talked about. Yep. So you're able to you know right now go you know and get real world experience, generate real dollars whilst in the background working on on some of those uh, some of those bigger bigger problems yeah exactly and like I said before in some ways they seem like they're very different things you know a space plane and satellite thrusters what do they have to do with one another but they all play into that that um, that end goal of having a really holistic well thought out um, an elegant space transportation system because it's not just enough to go to space it's not just enough to design a system that moves around in space and it's not just enough to design things that come back if you do it all in one thought then you come up with a system that's just dramatically better because it considers you know mobility of things going to space at, at all times that's interesting. And the, do you think from from what you've seen, there are many companies with that sort of holistic viewpoint, or does it, as it seem, as mostly um, you know more splintered in terms of uh, how things have been done, certainly to date? Um, reasonably splintered, but then I, I'd also forgive um, a, a lot of companies for not coming out with all of their, um, you know, not being so. Um, open about it to start with, I think is is pretty typical. We like to be pretty open about it because I, I I'd like to think I'm I'm actually not worried about competition. I, I really don't mind if people steal my ideas if they think my idea is great. I'd really just want it to happen. You know, our our fear at dawn is that nobody figures out this stuff and we don't get this massive opportunity um, of space. Um, so we just really want it to happen. So we're very open about it. But I'm sure other companies realize this to some extent and and there are other companies that that do think about it um you know firefly uh 
for example, that that building, pretty classic rockets, so the essentially the same as as SpaceX or, or Rocket Lab, but they do have you know pictures of space planes on their website. They're not working on them yet. I don't know why. They really should be, if you ask me. But um, the you know a, a space plane is not a super new idea, um, and and neither is is this in space transportation stuff. I just really wish people would start thinking about it in a a much more end-to-end solution, you know, a much more integrated thing. Yeah. Now, um, you know, when we look at those companies that are they're really innovating in, in particular areas versus, say, bigger, more established firms, and not, you know, not just in space, I'm sort of, you know, talking quite generally, you know, very common for there to be acquisitions, right? Lots, all sorts of companies all, you know, coming together, and the bigger companies... You know, often really really struggle with with you know pushing through into into new things mm-hmm. do you think it's important for for dawn to have sort of independence or can you see a, a time where you'd be you'd be open to sort of joining with other people maybe putting the monetary thing sort of aside in terms of actually you know getting uh, getting the outcomes that you're looking for um, I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out, but we're a long way away from that sort of sort of discussion. Um, sure, there's definitely ways that you can make mergers and acquisitions work. Um, there are definitely examples where um, larger companies have acquired smaller companies, and they haven't really just, you know, um, squished them or ruined their ideas or whatever. You know, um, Scaled Composites is a really good example of this. They're still an epic company, and they've been owned by a larger aerospace company for like 20 years now or something but they're, they're let to do their thing that they're, they're treated as sort of like a skunk works part of that organization where okay this is where the crazy out there ideas go and we we make sure that they they have funding and they they do some some other work on the side for us you know to to bring that innovation into the bigger um company but otherwise, let Skunkworks be Skunkworks and, and do their thing and, and create amazing innovation. So, you know, uh, hypothetically, I, I don't think we'd be against a setup like that. It also brings a huge amount of um, resource and capability and knowledge. You know, these these big organizations are, are successful for a reason. Mm. So um, delve, delving into the journey that you've had so far, you've had to go out and raise funds how many times now? Uh, we've had uh, our seed round. We had a small bridge round um, last year, and this is another um, convertible note. So three major funding rounds, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of how that's played out, in terms of um, you know access to to expertise as well as access to funds, how how's that you know from from your perspective? Because you know, I guess we've seen you know Peter Beck, for instance, was sort of very vocal in terms of. Yeah, hey, very hard to raise funds uh, in New Zealand. Certainly, when you know when he was really trying to to raise funds initially, I'm certainly hearing different sort of noises today in terms of how easy it is to to get access to capital. But that obviously varies from from one sector to you know or one area to another. Um, and then there's the access to you know partners that that bring you know certain special things to the table that you might need to tap into beyond the capital. Yep. Yeah, I mean, raising money at the moment is, um, we were super fortunate to have um, quite a few options available to us and our round was actually quite oversubscribed in the end as well. We ended up having to say no to a few people too. So um, 
I wouldn't say we've had trouble uh, finding capital, but it's always a, a question on just on what terms you can do that. Um, I think the investment landscape has changed quite a lot over the last five years, certainly, um, especially for aerospace startups in New Zealand. I mean, uh, kudos to Rocket Lab in that sense. They really showed that Kiwis can do it. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure Peter Beck tells some stories about, you know, being told, no, a rocket company will never happen in New Zealand. So um, in that sense, we're, um, we, we have a lot to be thankful for. Um, but no, I mean, raising capital is not uh, – it's not impossible at the moment at all. It's its pretty doable. Um, it's more challenging not being able to travel to the States. That's certainly where a lot of the capital is. But um, in this case, we were super happy to be able to raise in New Zealand and, and stay um, a bit more New Zealand-centric this time. You know, we, we had um, some capital come out of uh, Europe and the States as well in our, in our seed round. That was really great for bringing in some experience. You know, we had um, – our, our investor director is Eric Swan, who is a very successful entrepreneur in his own right. You know, he's had um, he started companies from nothing and had billion dollar exits, um, and, and is still very involved in those companies. And he just brings an absolute wealth of knowledge and sanity to what otherwise can be a pretty insane situation. You know, especially. Um, at least speaking for myself, I never thought I'd be in this situation. I certainly never trained for it, and um, I'm, I'm pretty green. Um, so he brings a lot of wisdom, a lot of um, just confidence to the team, I think, that um, that we're on the right track and that as crazy as things are, um, we're going in the right direction. Yeah. Now, if you look at where you are and what you're able to do today, would it have been possible... 10, 15 years ago, you know, how much is the, the technology that's available at our fingertips sort of facilitating what you're working on? The technology is definitely one element of it, like, uh, you know, computer simulation, um, more advanced electronics, uh, 3D printing, you know, there's all kinds of technologies that are helping. Um, I would say the the change in the market is the bigger thing, though. Um, you know, like I talked about before, this roadmap is really key. Um, building a space plane is even more expensive than building a regular rocket. Um, and part of the reason I think the space shuttle wasn't that successful is because they had to bite off so much in one chunk. You know, they had to build a, a space plane that was capable of taking 20 tons to orbit. The small satellite market has completely changed that. You know, if, if you could get 20 kilograms to orbit with a space plane, that'd be epic. That'd be great. You know, so the the problem is literally a thousand times smaller now. So that entry point on the roadmap of like, hey, we want to build a space plane. It's got to be able to take something to orbit. What's that something? It's a thousand times smaller now. So you know, we it is quite conceivable that we could go raise somewhere between 100, 200 million bucks and go build. Um, you know, a, a two-stage to orbit version of the space shuttle, essentially. Yeah, wow. Um, now, you talked about when you were studying and and um, learning to build a team and so on at that stage. What were the key learnings that uh, that that came out of that time for you from that that perspective of you know team building, leadership, and and uh, so on? Oh, I mean, one of the I mean, the first thing that always comes to mind there is how to deal with failure. You know, we had so much stuff go wrong, whether it was small rockets or big rockets. Um, we blew up so many of them, and you know, you you really knuckle down. You you look at the data and you think, oh, you know, why did this thing fail? And you think you have an answer, and then you go and put another engine together and you put it on the test stand, and it does exactly the same thing. Bang. <laughs> um, 
and I think we did this at some point about four or five times, and we were we only had money left for about another two burns um, of this engine before we had to go to Spain and actually try fly it. And um, it was hard because we, we really didn't know what was going wrong. We didn't have 50 years of experience in the team or something. You know, we were we were a bunch of master students at the time trying to figure out why these damn hybrid rocket motors keep blowing <laughs> up on us. Um, but it really made us rally. It made us really um, think critically, uh, really test your own hypotheses um, and, and be really self-critical. And sometimes that's really hard. You know, sometimes you really have a bias towards just thinking that you're right. Um, but really testing that um, and forming a team that actually breeds this culture as well, where you have some people who are who are trying to figure stuff out and you have other people that are trying to play devil's advocate and, and focus that... Um, that innovation into the right direction so that you actually really test your ideas before you go out and um, build them and test them for real. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, dealing with failure, not getting demotivated, um, being self-critical, um, being able to press on, find the actual solution and test it and show it and then go fly. Yeah. Yep. And how does that play out today? What does your what does your team look like? You know, who else is on the on the team, and how many people have you have you got, and so on? Um, yeah, so all the original founders are there. Um, we've built that team. Um, a, a few people that we worked on uh, worked with um, in, in this large student team. Like we kind of cherry picked the best ones of them as well, and they were some of the early employees in Dawn. Uh, but other than that, uh, we've been pretty intentional about trying to get people with other expertises, other experiences. You know, you, we didn't just want to build a team based on um, people from Canterbury University, where James came from, and Delft University of Technology, where where I and a bunch of the other founders come from, came from, because it would be a bit two-dimensional. Um, so we, we've tried to draw on other people that have had other experiences, other parts of industry, other expertise as well get a bit of diversity in there certainly yeah. helps yeah yep. are you able to share how many people you, you're oh yeah sorry yeah we're about 40 43 or something yeah growing pretty quickly I think we have about 10 jobs up at the moment which by the way um, yeah we really really want more people so if there's anyone listening that's that's keen go check out our careers page Excellent. Well, that's well, that was kind of what I was keen to get into as as learning, you know, what's Canterbury, what's New Zealand like to mm-hmm. run this type of um, you know, aerospace uh, business from, mm-hmm. and how hard is it to get the people? Because I'm sort of really curious about this broader picture, which maybe we'll, we'll head into next around, you know, how we make sure that New Zealand really takes advantage of our current position within the aerospace sector. And, and maximises that going forward. But you know, what's the sort of current state from, from your perspective? New Zealand's a pretty fantastic place to do really innovative stuff, really figure out really difficult new problems. We don't have a whole lot of um, history, especially in, in aerospace, so we don't have a lot of baggage with us. You know, There's not many people here who would tell you you can't do something. Can't do that. I tried that yeah. you know, 30 years ago, so it's not possible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but the flip side of that is um, we also don't have someone with 50 years' experience in building rocket motors here. So sometimes experience is pretty great, and Europe's pretty good for that. So we like to think we, we have both um, both angles there. You know, when we, we need really deep technical knowledge or, you know, like institutional skills or um, – 
you know, even just some some hardware and testing equipment and stuff that is just horrendously expensive, like supersonic or transonic wind tunnels for large vehicles. It's like that doesn't exist in New Zealand. But it was literally across the road from our offices in, in the Netherlands. So we could build all these models and draw on all these experts that have been working in hypersonic aerodynamics for you know, 20 years, um, we could just go talk to them about building this vehicle and they're super forthcoming with information. They loved it. They loved that people were trying to do something really hard and innovative because they don't see that all that much over there. But we're doing a ton of it over here. And so we could we could bring these two worlds together of really deep technical knowledge and capability in Europe and a real go-out-there-and-do-stuff type attitude in New Zealand. Um, so that's... In a nutshell, I think that's what New Zealand really brings to the, the aerospace game is, is an attitude of we can do stuff. We can go out there and build things. We can be innovative. Um, and and that's, that's not just the people coming out of university. That's even, even our like, Civil Aviation Authority has that attitude compared to the FAA, for example. You know, that's why companies like, uh, uh, like WISC are in New Zealand testing their um, – flying taxis because CAA is super approachable. They're, they're really keen to see how innovative technologies can work in the real world and, and how to actually make them work with other airspace users, for example. So we can be super innovative down here, super fast. Yeah, that's great. Um, and, you know, talking of, of WISC and, you know, we, we've chatted with Anna Komnik in the past. Yeah. Fantastic human, by the way. Absolutely. But you're in this sort of space uh, area now where there's a, a lot of, you know, there's really a growing sector in New Zealand. So what sort of challenges does that create in terms of looking for talent? Because, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it, yeah, yeah, it's not just you saying, <laughs> hey, come work for Dawn Aerospace. It's, uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a you know, um, a burgeoning sector here. And certainly over the, you know, over the last 12 months, um, you know, even uh, even more, you know, challenging than, uh, than, than usual, I'm sure, in some regards. Um, have you seen any New Zealanders that have that have come home from other parts of the the world during COVID that have um, you know you've been able to attract? Yeah, well, I mean, like definitely, our, our, um, a big resource for us is, is New Zealanders who are overseas and had epic experience overseas. Be it you know, like we have a guy um, Kiwi worked at SpaceX. You know, if that was a no-brainer, definitely going to hire that guy. <laughs> so um, it's not just poaching people in New Zealand. You know, I'm, I'm not going to whisk and trying to pull all their good engineers because the the fraction of good Kiwis working in aerospace companies um, and that are in New Zealand is quite small compared to the good Kiwis working in aerospace that are overseas is actually, like, that's a much bigger pool anyway. Yes. So there's not – I don't think there's been a whole lot of um, you know trying to steal the local ones or something like that, it's um, there's there's plenty to go around, yeah. um, and uh, it, I think there's actually a lot of merit in just cross pollination, actually, in different approaches, different expertises, different different advantages that we actually end up sharing mm-hmm. somewhat. Cool. So what? Do you think we need to be doing you know, as as a country? This is an area you know I've been starting to speak about in the media recently. That look, we're off to this you know, great great start. Uh, probably most Kiwis don't have have much visibility of 
you know, what we have as, a, as an aerospace um, sector. Uh, you know, Rocket Lab has has gained a huge amount of tension uh, and you know, well deserved. Um, but yeah, behind the scenes, seems you know, there's you know, well over a hundred companies yep. in New Zealand that are active in the aerospace sector. You know, such as such as uh, Dawn Aerospace, such as Whisk, but a whole lot of others and lots of sort of uh, niche areas. Um, but it's not something that probably most that are going through their schooling and their education um, have at the front of their mind that they possibly would have an opportunity uh, of being able to work in you know the, the broader aerospace area or new space um, a, a, as a possibility. So there's that side. It's obviously making sure we, we keep... You know the funding uh, funding channels and, and government sort of support flowing through. Yeah, what are the, what are the things on your mind from that perspective? Just just that space is a huge opportunity, and it, it's getting more and more obvious all the time. You know the um, the number of satellites in orbit currently is something like four thousand. I think a thousand of them were launched in the last eighteen months or so by SpaceX. Um, by 2030, I think it's projected to be 49 or 50,000 or something. You know, like it's it's more than a 10x increase in, in nine years' time. Is the growth is phenomenal, and so yeah, like I said before, you know that that this huge number of companies coming out of the woodwork to um, to use this opportunity um, is is indicative of it. And New Zealand stands to gain hugely from that. So like I said before, you know, we're we're super innovative. We're really good at these random niches I think um, Paul Callahan said you know New Zealand is really good at niches but we don't actually know which niches it'll end up being it just happens to be whatever we're good at you know like Fisher and Paykel Healthcare who could have predicted that that would have been a fantastic niche for New Zealand but um, you know productivity wise they're an amazing company for the country they pull in a huge amount of cash um, particularly compared to how many people actually work there we need more companies like that, and space could really offer that for New Zealand. It's, it's very high value. It would really help to build the, the middle class in New Zealand. There's, um, I personally think tech is probably one of the best things for New Zealand to be putting money into if we have money to, you know, to, to put into the economy. 100%, um, yeah. So. Well, the the productivity, the sort of the return, you know, per person that gets generated, you know, back into the economy, and you know what those individuals are able to earn when we when we look at tech, we look at uh, aerospace is is pretty solid, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, jobs into the you know upwards of eighty k is is obviously very common, and it goes. You know, I think the average of a, a company like Facebook is more like two hundred thousand US dollars is, is the average wage at a company like that. We need more companies like you know that bring in that sort of value to the uh, to the country in New Zealand and space is great because it's one that is pretty location agnostic it's kind of per definition like an international industry if you're working in space the thing you're building or servicing or whatever even downstream data product or whatever is probably an international thing because the data is international the service is international um, so it's it's very um, it's very easy to export to the rest of the world, even if we're you know stuck in the middle of the Pacific Ocean down here. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, I think it's a pretty fantastic place to be. Well, it's been really really interesting. So just sort of I guess the question is you know where to from here. 
you know what's uh, what's next for Dawn Aerospace? What do you think that you know your next big mountains to climb are, or um, uh, whatever the space version of, of that is? <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> well, I mean, the last six months have been pretty big for us in terms of getting hardware in space and showing that our satellite thrusters actually work. You know, we had the first uh, first firing of our B twenty thrusters, which is a it was a new propellant combination that had never been flown in space before. They were um, you know, that the green propulsion, they don't use this nasty chemical hydrazine anymore. So there's this really fantastic option for satellite builders to use. Um, and so we're seeing a huge uptick in interest of that because like, oh, you know, it's been proven in space now. Great. It's low enough risk that all of the early adopters want to move in on it. So the real hard thing for us now is actually just satisfying that demand is figuring out how to build enough of these systems for all the different satellite manufacturers out there that want to jump in on it it's it's a real challenge but it seems like a a good problem to uh, uh, to have yeah yeah we'd like to call it a success problem but um but it is also a a, like a a genuine problem Mm. because um the space community is small and if we don't execute on that they'll they'll quickly realize like hey maybe maybe we shouldn't have done that maybe we'll go back to the old stuff um which we don't want because there's there's, there's a huge advantage here. Um, and, and that's just the first step. The next step after that is really building full propulsion systems. And after that, there's a whole lot more to come before we actually integrate that into our launch vehicles. And, of course, that on the launch vehicle side of things, the next step is to start flying our Mark II, um, show that that can actually fly to space twice in a day. And once we've done that, you know, that'll be a that'll be a world first. You know, humanity's never gotten anything above the Kármán line, you know, 100Ks altitude um, twice in a day. So that would really be, in, in our eyes, the, the start of a, a revolution, the start of truly reusable in the same way that you think of an aircraft as being reusable space hardware. Um, and then we need to scale it up and build a real product that can actually get stuff to space, get stuff to orbit. Now, I'm just curious, um, and I'm sure there are there are others that aren't deep experts on this stuff, but they're curious about that Carmen line that, mm-hmm. um, yeah, 100 kilometres up, that's what, um, uh, not Virgin Orbit, the other one. Virgin Galactic. Virgin Galactic, yeah. um, because Virgin Orbit are out building building space planes, right? Exactly. Um, but uh, with, Virgin Orbit are building rockets, you know, vertical that, Oh, that's rockets. right. Yep. Yep. Virgin Galactic are building space planes. That's right. Getting my things mixed up. But oh. with, um, yeah, so with their space plane, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're aiming to, or they, they're going to that kind of 100-kilometre type mark as well? Is that? Uh, yeah, yes, just slightly less. That, yeah. that, that'd be a slightly lower performance than like the first stage of a rocket. So what what we're aiming for is that our Mark II Aurora and then the, the first stage of the Mark III will really be the same performance as the first stage of a rocket. So if you've seen like a Falcon 9 launch, that first stage generally goes to sort of 100, 120, maybe 140 kilometers altitude. Right, right. And it does this big ballistic trajectory and yep. then, it, and then yep. it falls back down to the ocean. Yeah. And then well, they use their their rocket engines to slow down so they don't smash into the atmosphere too hard, yeah, yeah. and then their rocket motors to actually land on a barge in the middle of the ocean. Yep. So that's that's a great way to get get your rocket staged back. We want to show that we can do that exact same profile with essentially a, a, a space plane, but instead of needing you know propulsive force to slow down and then land, we can save the fuel instead have wings and landing gear. 
and be able to turn around and glide back to, to where we took off from. And that has all kinds of other advantages like, uh, you know, it's um, we, we're not reliant on engines for landing. Wings are generally much more reliable because they're static, they're there. You don't mm. have to turn them on. Yep. Um, you have all kinds of safe abort on, on the way up. You know, if you had an issue with your engine, um, you'd just be able to turn around and, and land again. You, you have all the... Um, all the amazing usefulness of an aircraft, you know, that it's certified under aviation law, that it can fly out of basically any airport. You know, you you bring rockets into this aviation model, you fly it like an airline flies multiple times a day, because why not? Yeah, right. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. And what where's the um, the entry back into the atmosphere? What uh, what point is that at? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like a hard line. Yeah, um, okay. You know, it just gets the... the Further down you go, the thicker the soup gets, and um, the faster you're going too, because you're falling further now. So for a rocket that doesn't have any wings, that's a real problem. They, you know, they really sort of hit the wall, is what they say. But if you have wings, you're you're able to generate lift, and you're able to start slowing your descent, so you can you can pull up. And what you actually do is you you do that in the really high atmosphere, you know, sort of at 25, almost 30 k's um, altitude, and then you actually go back up. So that you scrub all your all your speed off in the higher atmosphere where it's really thin and you you just don't get as hot you don't see as nearly as many forces you don't need as much in, in terms of thermal protection systems or like you know fancy materials or anything because you you get rid of all of your energy before you've fallen down into that thick soup where where the atmosphere really burns you up so is this so how different is that to the space shuttle because I remember you know there heat issues with the tiles yep. and you know haven't seen the space shuttle and you know um, yeah, so, NASA, it's, uh, so the space shuttle's coming back from orbit yeah. you know so that's doing um, 28,000 kilometres an hour when it comes back yeah. luckily we'll only be doing something in the order of two and a half or 3,000 kilometres an hour when, when we hit the atmosphere so it's fast but you know it's one tenth as fast and the heating rate happens to be um, a function of the cube of your speed. So, you know, if we're doing one-tenth the speed, we have one-thousandth the heating. So the space shuttle needed pretty fancy thermal protection systems to be able to survive, just like any capsule does. Yep. We almost need nothing. We all, like in, You know, like Virgin Galactic's aircraft almost has no thermal protection system at all. I think it, it just has a stainless steel cap on the, on the leading edge. That's, that's all you need. Wow! Wow! So it's 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 just completely different. Yep, and yeah. and you can you know just being able to do that means you recover ninety five percent of your hardware. So there'll still be a second stage on board that yeah. you know goes off to orbit and that brings the satellite into its orbit. And yeah, you'll we'll we'll lose that. That's expendable for now. We have ways or plans to be able to recover that in future, which makes the full system reusable, and that's kind of the the holy grail, if you like. Um, but for now, we're we're shooting for sort of ninety five percent reusability, which is a pretty uh, you know it's it's a good start at least. Yeah, yeah. And with your um, with your first generation, tell us just a quick on you know where you got to with that, and then what what you're doing with the with the second generation. Yeah. So so the Mark II, which is uh, the first. Um, it's the technology demonstrator for the real deal. So it's yeah. it's the smallest version of this plane that we could build that's still going to fly the same trajectory. It's still going to be able to get to, you know, above 100 kilometres altitude in a day. Right. So we have um, the first prototype of that vehicle. We'll be able to fly 
Um, you know, we, we have a very um, build-up sort of test scheme. It's, it's not like flying a regular rocket where, you know, you build it for five years and you stick it on the pad and you, you light the candle and hope that it works. You know, this is an aircraft development. It's, it's very iterative. It's very built up. So, you know, the first thing you do is a bunch of taxi tests. You drive it faster and faster down, down the runway and then eventually you take off and you fly a few circuits and you come and land. And actually, before we even put a rocket motor on it, we fly it on jets because jets are commercially available, they're cheap, they fly very well um, in the atmosphere, and that just lets us learn about the airframe, learn about the avionics, make that not quite so experimental anymore. And then we put the the rocket motor on that. So we'll start flying in um, probably the next few months or so. Um, You know, we don't we don't really announce dates because this is research and development. You, you never really know how long it's going to take. Um, and then uh, after that, we'll put the rocket motor on it. But the, the rocket motor is already in pretty late stages of development. We're doing a lot of testing on that, and it's things are going pretty well. So we're pretty confident that um, you know at some point in the next year or so, we'll have um, a real rocket plane. That's very cool. That's excellent. Uh, anything else you'd like to uh, add, Stefan? No, it's been great. Fantastic. I really, really appreciate you taking the taking the time to uh, to drop by. Um, very, very interested to follow the rest of your journey, and yeah, certainly looking forward to having a having a closer look at what what you're doing. So, uh, yeah, it'd be great to see what's happening down down there in Christchurch at some stage. So, uh, yeah. yeah, we'll have to have another catch up in a few months' time once we're once we're flying. Yeah, that's great. great. All right, well, all the best, and uh, yeah, I think let's uh, let's hope that we can really keep keep things moving as far as the New Zealand aerospace sector goes as well. But I think a, a lot of people are very very excited about what you're doing, and um, wish you all the best for the next steps. Yeah, thanks. We're super stoked and excited about it too. Good stuff. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us uh, here on the New Zealand Tech Podcast uh, and the New Zealand Business Podcast. I guess we've sort of delved into a bit of business and a bit of tech, so uh, we'll be sharing this out. So whichever of those you're subscribed to, or if you're subscribed to both, then uh, you probably won't have too much um, chance of missing out on catching this. If you've picked this this up on uh, one of the live stream videos, then you'll be able to find the full uh, podcast to listen to in your earbuds through whatever your favourite podcast app is whether that's uh, sort of Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Spotify etc. So um, yeah thanks for joining us, a big thank you to our show partners as well uh, really appreciated uh, to have Umbrella Connect uh, Vocus, Vodafone, Spark HP Datacom and Palo Alto Networks on board supporting us at the moment. So, yeah, great uh, great thanks to them. And thanks again, Stefan. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Cheers. New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community. Proudly supported by Umbrella Connect.